As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Paul Sweeney. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. This is a joy. Every research report is the character of the individual. Stephen Shork knows every valve in the Northeast on oil. He's, went out, he's gone out there, he's turned them. When, when you say, what's Harbor doing? He could give you six <laughs> flavors of the price of oil in New York Harbor. It is an acuity on oil and gas like we've never seen. We, he's a shark report, uh, can't say enough about his work. Stephen, good morning. As simple as good I morning. can, are we energy independent now within the holistic shark report? Is this nation energy independent? Uh, absolutely not, Tom. Uh, we were up until uh, a few years ago. Uh, that is to say, we were producing a tremendous amount of oil. Now we're we're back to those levels, and actually we're at record levels. Uh, but the investments that we are seeing have certainly held us back. And there is a uh, misnomer out there when when people hear energy independent, uh, they they, they kind of think, well, hey, we're we're not reliant on on imports or or, or so forth. Uh, we are. Uh, we, we, we do export a considerable amount uh, of products, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, so forth. Uh, and we're also at times significant exporters of crude oil. That was never the case up until yeah, a few uh, years ago. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting, so, Damien. I just want to say yeah. on YouTube, all the secrets are given away. Steve Short is coming to us from right off the ninth tee at the Ocean Forest <laughs> Golf Club, Sea Island, Georgia, this morning. Oh, you know, we're getting him in the middle of his games. That's that's a good thing. Sea Island, you, can, you should be going shooting, I, skeet shooting down in Sea Island, Stephen. No, 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 no. I, I'm actually doing market research. Oh. I am working this quarter from Curacao. So, and we're on the south part of the island with direct sight lines to the Venezuelan shipping lane. It's been very interesting. So uh, I'm a, watching the tankers go back and forth. So th this is all uh, work related. There's an umbrella in his tank. Yeah, sure. So, so, so Stephen, I have to ask you, we have Brent here at 7906 grappling with the psychological $80 a barrel level, you know, yeah. level it hasn't seen since November, quite honestly. My question for you is in the futures complex, you mentioned open interest on the rise, volumes, what are you yeah. getting from sentiment? What, 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 what are options markets telling you? 
And so right now uh, we're starting to see uh, some activity building up. We've had we've been in this significant downturn in oil prices uh, since October, since the start of, and I'm going to call it uh, Iran's war with the West. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've only seen prices go lower at this time. And I'm of the opinion that uh, really traders are whistling past the graveyard here. Uh, but what we're seeing now in the complex, the futures complex, is first and foremost, open interest is rising. Hmm. Now, algebraic notation, when prices are falling, that's a negative. Multiply that by rising a positive. Uh, you have a lot of money that's been coming into the market that's been short. Yep. And in fact, when we look at the large speculators, they are short the equivalent of about 670 million barrels of oil. Uh, that's about 95% of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve <laughs> equivalent. So uh, you have a tremendous amount of bearish bets and volume intensity has been building. Now, just based on, I just looked at the numbers coming in, up until this point, volatility, price variance has been falling. That's starting to rise now in the spreads. You're starting to see a premium being placed into the spot market. So this is clearly a sign that the market's getting ready to potentially mm. explode. You have a lot of money in the market. A lot of that money is short. Trading volume has been intense. Now volatility is picking up. Uh, all you need is perhaps one more headline, i.e. something out of the Middle East. You got and you it. You can really see oil take off from this point. You're, you're taking the words right out of my mouth, Stephen. OPEC Plus, can they keep the supply cuts up? Are you expecting them to be able to hold fast in the face of Brent crude below $80? Uh, no, I'm not. And I think with, with OPEC, people kind of think it's it's not a corporation. It's not that, okay, the board <laughs> or the CEO makes a decision and the company carries it out. No, it is a organization that is a multifaceted, uh, all different countries, all acting on their own self-interest. And of course, Saudi Arabia, they're trying to uh, rate in production, but mainly your African producers uh, need the cash at this point. So it's really difficult now for OPEC, right. i.e. Saudi Arabia, to keep control of production. One final question, Stephen Shork, and I look at this with a gallon of gas. John Tucker's not here to give us our, a gallon of gas update with a Hummer, but are we are we anywhere near a gallon of gas where we shift to electric vehicles? What a six months it's been in the electric vehicle debate. You've provided real leadership here. Can electric do electric vehicles need a higher gallon of gas price to succeed? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and Tom, as you know, in economics, there are two variables that drive uh, prices uh, and demand, and that's essentially price shocks, which since the Arab oil embargo in the early 70s, we've had plenty of shocks to the market, but we've never had that second variable until recently, yeah. i.e. the substitute. Uh, but the problem now with substitutes or, or, or with EVs is technology. And, and I'm only going to speak you know, from my own perspective anecdotally. I, I have an electric uh, hybrid plug-in, and I love the darn thing. Uh, but the problem is I'm not buying them. I'm, I'm just leasing them because every three years the technology improves. Right. So now, the, yeah. and I'm not the only one, so there's this overhang uh, of used EVs that no one's buying. So no one's buying right. those. It's going to be very difficult. So prices yeah. right now under that $4 gallon are not high enough to really push consumers back to complete EV. Stephen Shork, thank you so much. The Shork Report coming from his studios in Playa Lagoon, Curacao. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, 
to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. They literally have research notes that say Daco like taco. I mean, good morning, <laughs> Mr. Daco like taco. As I see here, Mark, and, and, you know, people like Mark Crumpton, he knows everybody's name cold. And I'm like useless. So they got a big flashing billboard here. Gregory Daco like taco. Wonderful to have you here. With Ernst and Young, EY, he's our chief economist. And it's more than just like market economics. What's GDP going to do? It's like the fabric, the makeup of our economics as well. And Greg, I've got to go seriously here to this analysis of the new productivity. Mm -hmm. Do you at EY, with all of your abilities in corporate America, have any understanding of the new productivity or do we have to wait five years to find out what it is? (laughs) (laughs) Do do we have to wait until it happens to uh, to actually talk about it? No, I think we can talk about it today. Um, I think what's very interesting in our insights that we gather at EY is that we talk to a lot of CEOs, we talk to a lot of business leaders uh, as to how they're navigating this highly uncertain environment where inflation and cost fatigue remain very much a constraint on economic activity and where supply remains very much fragile. And there's a lot of effort happening from CEOs across the the different sectors of the U.S. economy that are trying to alleviate some of these pressures. They're looking at ways to improve processes and stimulate efficiency gains via these process improvements. But they're also looking at technology as an avenue to stimulate stronger growth and less inflation. And that's where Jim and, and Damien, to me, this is the heart of the matter is we go tech and we say AI, AI, yeah. and it's all EI, EIO, it's all technology. And the answer is what matters is tech on Monsanto. <laughs> right, exactly. Or tech on DuPont. It matters just as much. Well, Greg, first of all, let me apologize to your father for butchering, for Tom butchering uh, the DACO <laughs> yeah, yeah, last name. Sorry. But, you know, in your most recent macro pulse, you're talking about the disinflationary winds that are still blowing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could just help us understand why the market is so hyper-focused on next Friday's PCE print. What's so important about it? What should we be looking for? Well, the simple answer is that the Fed will be reacting mechanically to inflation developments over the course of this year. And that's why there's a lot of focus on the next data print. Uh, And I think the next- And what are we expecting there? Is it- We'll we'll show we'll show um, you know lower inflation. We're yeah. going to see this ongoing disinflationary momentum. We'll likely have core inflation ending 2023 below three percent, which is something that very few forecasters only three, not two expecting. and a half. I thought two and a half is the number we're looking for there. <laughs> well, core inflation under okay. under three percent, which is uh, quite the the feat. Um, I think the disinflationary currents will continue. We have an environment where we're seeing gradually moderating. Uh, final demand growth. We're seeing supply that is relatively well served. We're seeing an environment where businesses are looking for wage growth compression as an avenue to limit costs. We're also seeing an environment where there is less pressing power and much more sensitivity to increases in prices. And then rent disinflation is still very much in the pipeline. So that's the right combo to get more disinflation. You know, the look ahead in the next week, into February, into 2024, rent disinflation to me is my number one. 
No, it's awesome. one watch. Of David. course it is. Of course. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, we could talk about shelter and we could talk about inflation until we're blue in the face, Greg. But, you know, one of the interesting pieces you just put out is on Gen AI. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tom is not convinced on AI. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to preface that. And, and yet I'm reading this wonderful piece about the productivity boost and, you know, what the impact of it is and, and job reshuffling. Talk to us a little bit about what you believe the economic impact of Gen AI is going to be. I think the economic impact of Gen AI is going to be felt across most sectors. Um, it may not necessarily be uh, a game changer in the sense that it multiplies uh, the pace of growth by, by a factor of two or three, but it is going to have a significant impact. The way we look at it is that there's going to be a need and a desire to invest a lot in Gen AI. There is a need to invest in the infrastructure, the software, the company adoption. That is going to lead to a boost of GDP. After that, we're also going to see significant productivity gains. We estimate that over the next decade well, for the U.S. economy, we could have a boost of 3.5% of GDP. Wow. Okay, guys like you and Fancy, you see how Greg is dressing now? He's with EY. <laughs> he used to dress like a market economist. Now he just looks like he's consulting to somebody at $10,000 an hour down in Dallas or flying in. He's wearing contacts now. He ditched the, the glasses. That's the heart of the matter. Now, did you get wonky here? I'm looking at productivity, and we, we of course, we lost this year the giant of productivity, Robert Solo uh, of MIT. Yes. I got capital dynamics, I got labor dynamics, and I got this wacko thing called total factor productivity. Mm-hmm. Which of those three is the shock forward to our new American productivity? Well, it's, it's a timing issue, right? Initially, you have to invest. So initially, the boost to economic activity actually comes from the additional investment necessary. Capital deepening in that. Capital right. deepening and, and, and capital yeah. investment generally in technology. After that, you get the benefits in terms of productivity growth. And it's not going to be you know, some magical number that comes out of nowhere. It's actually going to be more efficiency in the way we do our jobs. Yeah. And it's be- going to be across sectors. And I think we have to step away from this notion that it's only going to be low-skilled jobs. Actually, high-skilled jobs can be augmented quite tremendously by Gen AI. Let me quantify this for our audience here. Greg estimates, and, and the team at ENY estimate, that the lift to global GDP from stronger productivity could total, are you ready for this, between $1.2 and $2.4 trillion over the next decade. But that's not just the U.S. now, is it? Where do you think the impact of that productivity boost is going to be felt most? Is it going to be the U.S.? Is it Europe? Is it Asia? I think the U.S. is going to benefit most from that uh, because the U.S. is essentially leading the way when it comes to these these new technologies. Uh, But Europe is investing a lot. Um, And then after that, you have China and the rest of Asia that's also following very closely. So that's going to be a positive boost in terms of global economic How do you at EY treat China? Hang Seng is cratering, et cetera, et cetera. What is the EY summary of how China will recover? Well, I think we have to understand that China is no longer going to be the global engine of growth that it once was. We're going to be in an environment where there are cyclical headwinds in terms of economic activity. We're seeing less spending in terms of retail sales, industrials activity, uh, the real estate sector, but we're also, and very importantly, seeing structural headwinds. The population is not only aging, it's also shrinking. That is a big drag on the economy's potential growth. And I wouldn't be surprised that in the the next five to 10 years, China grows at an advanced economy pace rather than as an emerging economy pace. Gregory Daco with us with EY, just really, really valuable. So important. uh, A lot of different, you get a whole different perspective from the major accountancies and consultants than you do from people going, you know, what's GDP going to be? They've got no skin in the game, that's right. It's an unfiltered, unbiased opinion. 
Joining us now, Brian Levitt with Invesco. Brian, I got some chit-chat, but because there's a time, let's get right to it now. Is cash an asset for Invesco? Well, investors are clearly viewing it as an asset, and I think it does hold the place at certain times. The challenge is right now with yields above 5%, investors are loving it. The risk that they have is reinvestment. And so if we're right and the Federal Reserve is going to be normalizing the yield curve, well, then those yields will come down. We've been we've been telling people, lock it in. If you like yields for 30 days, you'll probably love them for five or 10 years. Brian, I want you to put on your foreign exchange hat for me for a second. I'm going to talk about one of your close colleagues, Alessio DeLongas, who's a senior PM, head of global tactical asset allocation at Invesco, and his work on factor investment in foreign exchange. Talk to us about the beta regime that we're coming out of, one where FX performance has really been driven by rate differentials. Are we moving into a new regime where value is going to take control of that? Talk to us. Well, I think over the next couple of years, we will. I mean, typically what happens as the Fed normalizes the yield curve, you start to unlock some of the value that exists in the world, whether that's in U.S. value stocks, whether that's in uh, right now international market. The challenge we have in the near term is that we got a lot of returns in November and December. I wish we would have paced them out over a longer period of time. So you have growth below trend right now, the market recalibrating where the Fed's going to be in March and by the end of the year. So you may see a little bit of a quality growthy trade again in here. But if you're an intermediate term investor expecting the Fed to normalize yield curve, the yield curve, then yeah, value-oriented investment should perform well over the next couple of years. And talk to us a little bit about the, the end of QT. I mean, there's been some talk that it's going to end early. Talk to us about central bank runoff. Does this have the potential to crowd out other fixed income asset classes? I don't think it does. I mean, the, the, the fixed income market has been behaving, I would say, appropriately. If you look at where the 10-year Treasury has been, it's now hovering around what the nominal growth potential of this country likely is. So I don't think that this is being significantly manipulated one way or the other. And as the Fed has wound down its balance sheet, um, the markets have operated the markets have operated just fine. Um, I think it makes sense. Right now, policy is just too tight. You know, five and a quarter on the funds rate um, uh, slowly winding down the balance sheet when when growth is slowing, policy is too tight. So we should expect an easier environment going forward. Brian Levitt, thank you so much. Too short a visit. We'll do it again soon, soon, soon. Brian Levitt's with Invesco there uh, with a more holistic view on your asset allocation. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now joining us, 
A gentleman of inherent optimism. He has points where he can wax philosophical and get gloomy, but Neil Dutta with us. With Run Mac, and I made very clear he was out front with optimism amid the gloom, I'm going to call it 14 months ago or so. I just looked at Atlanta GDP, and after a 4.x% Q3, we're modeling out somewhere in the vicinity of a normal American economy, 2.3%. That seems better than good versus the gloom of recession. Neil Dutta, thank you so much for joining us. Is 2.3% a run rate for the American economy? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we're probably in a range of around two to two and a half percent. I mean, it's important to note, as you did, that we're coming off of a very strong quarter in the third quarter. So uh, it was, I think, inevitable that the economy would buckle a little bit under its own weight. I mean, you can't sustain that kind of momentum. Mm -hmm. But I think what's important, Tom, is that, um, you know, that estimate you mentioned, you know, Atlanta Fed around, uh, you know, let's say two percent. I mean, that's despite a pretty significant decline uh, in inventory investment. In other words, inventories are cutting right. GDP growth. And so final sales uh, look pretty healthy. And, uh, you know, I think that's important because, uh, you know, ultimately uh, firms are going to replenish inventories. And right. when that happens, it supports cyclical areas of the economy. Yeah, Bob Burgess, Sir Robert Burgess of Bloomberg News has my chart of the week, folks. It's a log regression of retail sales since time began. I think he goes back to the War of 1812. And the answer is with the noise around the great financial crisis, the noise around COVID, with the stimulus, we've had a massive retail boom. Money question, Neil Dutta, does retail consumption sales, do they come back to trend line or do we need to assume at some point we see diminished consumption off long term trend? Well, I don't think it's coming back to that trend line. I mean, absent some kind of a recession, um, you know, people tend to keep on spending money so long as the economy and employment are growing. And that's what's happening. Um, you know, I do. I mean, you mentioned a lot about the stimulus, but I really think that that's, um, you know, yesterday's story. I mean, ultimately, what's driving consumer spending at this point is um, a revival in real incomes. Right. So uh, inflation has slowed. The labor markets are steady. And as a result, uh, real incomes have been accelerating. So uh, that's ultimately what's driving consumer spending. And I think that that's poised to continue. It's one of the reasons why. Uh, consumers are a bit more confident. I mean, the, the fact that uh, prices have come down uh, and that'll likely continue over the next you know, couple of quarters, um, that's important. And uh, you know, that decline yeah. in, uh, in price inflation lifts in real incomes, obviously, and that in turn supports consumer spending. The story, you know, the excess savings, fiscal stimulus, yep. you know, these arguments I think have really outlived their usefulness. Neil, financial markets appear infatuated, infatuated with next week's uh, GDP, sorry, PCE deflator print. Talk to us about that. What are you looking for next week? Well, I think it'll be a soft point, too. I think the Bloomberg News consensus is, is, is point two. I think it's a soft point, too. But, you know, what I would say um, is that, you know, for all this talk about the last mile of inflation is the hardest, it's a bumpy road back to 2%. It's important for people to know that core PCE inflation over the last six months is already running below 2%. Right. It's at 1.9% at an annual rate. So, uh, you know, keep in mind that, um, you know, the Fed believes that core inflation this year is going to be 2.4% uh, year over year uh, in the fourth quarter. 
We're running below that. So I think by the time the Fed meets in March, they're going to have to revise down their core inflation estimates yet again. And I think it's going to be very difficult for them to, you know, push back on rate cuts at that point. I mean, so they may they may either they're cutting in March or they're using the March meeting to set up a rate cut in May. Neil, Tom is right. You called it looking back some, you know, year and a half ago, you were fading the hard landing scenario. You were calling for the soft landing. It materialized. And here we are today and the markets are still looking for a soft landing. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I mean, I think, you know, I think the um, the markets are right to um, anticipate a benign scenario. I mean, there's a lot of um, inertia behind the disinflation process. I mean, I think this time last year, I mean, Powell probably, in my view, was pro- was prematurely, frankly, declaring the start of a disinflation process. I mean, at the time, I wasn't arguing for soft landing. I was arguing for no landing. Right, right. Um, but but I but I think but I think at this point, um, you know, we have a soft landing uh, unfolding right before our eyes. I mean, I, I have a, I have a fair degree of confidence that inflation is right. cooling off. Keep in mind that used car prices will probably decline quite sharply over the next several uh, months. Uh, that's not something that we saw in either uh, November or uh, or December, but it's it's likely right. something we're going to see start the year. And we know that housing rents are moderating. Well, that's uh, at where, the same that, time, the economy is growing. Yeah, that's where I wanted to go, because to me, that's the theme for the day. Julia Coronado out with a chart on this. Uh, Joe Lavornia I thought was quite good this morning. Let's hear from Neil Dutta of Renmac. And, and Neil, the fact is shelter wrapped around rent and not this goofy OER, which I have no idea how it's calculated. <laughs> but what's the actual countable disinflation you see across multifamily? across single home rentals, like what Blackstone's doing, and across home ownership in America? Well, it's interesting you mentioned OER. I mean, one reason why that number is looking a little bit firmer, Tom, is because uh, the owned housing stock obviously is more single family than multifamily, right? And so single family residential rents have been holding up a little bit firmer than than apartment rents. Uh, You know, we saw yesterday as an example that multifamily completions uh, jump sharply. And so we do have a lot of apartment supply coming on. But I think what's important is that um, new tenant rents, uh, which is what the BLS released yesterday, right. that index is down about four and a half percent against the, against last year. Now, it probably overstates things. Um, you know, that is clear in the data. It tends to over exaggerate the swings in, in the CPI number. But it does tell you fairly clearly what the direction of travel is lower. And so, you know, I think housing and rental inflation will continue to melt over the next couple of quarters. And again, I mean, that will support um, a recalibration of monetary policy this year. I got one final question is really important. Do we need to model out after pitchers and catchers? (laughs) Like if we get out near opening day where the Detroit Tigers start strong, they're going to be playing 1000 ball by, you know, they're going to win opening day. And then it's downhill from there. Neil Dutta, when we get out to April, are we going to have some form of inflation series, one point X percent? Can it get below two? I mean, it's it's plausible, as I mentioned. I mean, we're there. We're already there on a six month basis. 
and uh, you know you still yeah. have some distance in front of us. So it's, it's certainly plausible that you'll be, okay. uh, you know, on a glide path yeah. below two percent. Damien's Neil. trying to make someone. I happy. mean, yeah, Neil. I mean, Tom, John, Lisa. Somewhere. They always want to know from you because you know they want to know about the U.S. economy. What I want to know is I want to know your thoughts on China. I want you to talk to me about China deflation. I want to talk about dollar yuan. I want you to talk to me about the property sector and this economy that's so clearly on its back. And forget about investing in China. What's the impact on global financial markets and valuations here? I mean, I, I don't, I mean, to me, China is a bit of a black box. I don't follow it very closely. What I can tell you is that for all the weakness in China, it's important to note that, uh, you know, the emerging markets outside of China have been holding up reasonably well yes. during this period. So I think that that's, that's notable. So maybe, um, you know, the, the, the 2000s were all about how right. China was sort of the incremental driver of, of, of demand globally. And maybe that's not as much the case yeah. anymore. Hugely valuable. Neil Dutta, thank you so much. A lot to chew on there, folks, with optimism on the American economy wrapped around a better than good real wage. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, bringing you the best in economics, finance, investment and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.